0: Wise for Hadar and Parashat by Yishlach, Unmaking assumptions. In this week's Parsha, Yaakov's long sojourn away from his parents and from his homeland comes to an end. Though twenty years have elapsed, the memory of why Yaakov had to leave, the fact that his brother Asaph had threatened his life, is still quite fresh in Yaakov's mind. Much of the energy Yaakov expends at the beginning of this Parsha is focused on preparing for his reunion with his brother, which Yaakov assumes will be confrontational and dangerous. Yaakov expects the worst and prepares for the worst, sending his brother demonstrations of his own wealth, power, and security, attempting to bribe his brother. He even strategically splits his children into separate camps so that there would be survivors in the event of war. However, a close examination of the story yields that much of this preparation was unnecessary and counterproductive. We have a lot to learn from Yaakov's fear in this moment, about our own fear, about assumptions that we make about other people, and that they make about us. And about what we could do, perhaps, to move away from suspicion and towards reconciliation. Shir Hashirim Rabbah describes the moment in which Esav and Yaakov meet. At first glance, the Midrash seems to encode animosity between the two brothers. But at the same time, it also shows a glimmer of possibility of what could have been. Tzavareich kimigdal migdal hashen, Ketiv V'yaretz Esav l'kratto kehu v'yipol al-tzavarav v'yishakehu Kulo nakud Amarabi Shema ben Alazar. Melamid shall loba linash ko, Ella linosho. Vena set tavaro shall Yako Avinu shall shayish. Vekahu shinam shall oto resha. Vena masu kedonag. Uma tamudomar Ella zeboche al tavaro. Veseboche al shinav. Rabbi Abau beshame Rabbi Alazar mighty Laminhada minhada. Savarich kemigdal hashain. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. It is written, Esav ran to greet him, and he hugged him, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. The word, Vaishakehu, and he kissed him, is entirely dotted on top of the text in a Torah scroll. Rabbi Shimon ben Alazar said, This teaches that Esav did not come to kiss him, Linashko, but rather came to bite him, L'Nashko. The neck of our father Yaakov turned to marble, and the teeth of that evil man were set on edge, and they melted like wax. What does the verse mean by saying, and they cried, vayivku? This one was crying over his neck, and that one was crying over his teeth. Rabbi bahu in the name of Rabbi Elazar brought this same teaching from this verse, Your neck is like a tower of ivory. There is a surface, perhaps even simplistic reading of this Midrash, which makes Asav look evil and vampire-like. Asav embraces his brother with the sinister purpose of falling on his neck and harming him. According to this understanding of the teaching, Asav is not embracing his brother out of love or hope for reconciliation, rather he's trying to get at his brother's jugular. Unfortunately for Yaakov, God hardened his neck, turning it into marble or ivory in order to fend off this stealth attack. This is the way that the Ibn Ezra reads this Midrash which he then forcefully rejects as a plausible reading of the biblical text. The Midrashic interpretation of the dots on top of the word and he kissed him by Ishakehu is good for those who have just been weaned. But according to the straightforward interpretation, Esau did not plan to do evil to his brother, and the proof is the word "va'yifku," and they cried, which is also used in the context of the reunion between Yosef and his brothers. According to the Ibn Ezra, only those as immature as babies will be impressed with the Midrash that suggests that Esau intended to bite his brother. The proof that the Ibn Ezra supplies for his view is that the tears of Esau and Yaakov when they cry are no less genuine than the tears that Yosef and his brothers shed. The validity of his position, if not its tone, is also underscored by the grammar of the verse. Although both brothers cry, Yaakov and Asaph do not embrace each other. The singular language points to the fact that the kissing and the hugging is done by Asaph with no response on the part of his younger brother, aside for joining in his tears. We can see this uneven interest in reconciliation when we look at Asef's request to travel with his long-lost brother, which Yaakov diplomatically denies. Vayomer, nisa'av anacha ve'acha lenagdecha. Vayomer elav Adoni yodea ki hayaladim rakim v'hatson v'hapakar alot alai, hu t'fakum yomechad v'metu kolhatson. Ya'avorna Adoni l'fnei avdo, vaniat nahala li'iti l'regal ha'malacha asher l'fanai. Ul regal hailadim, Ada sher avo el adoni seira. Vayomer Asab, atiga naim ha minha am asheriti. Vayomer lamazem, emtachen be Vayasha, Bayomahu Asab lidarko seira. Viakov Viyakov nasasukota. Vayven lo bayet ulumiknehu asa sukot. Aken karashem hamakom sukot. Then Asab said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go alongside you. But Yaakov said to him, My lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me, and if they are overdriven for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will go on slowly, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my lord in Seir. So Asaph said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Yaakov said, Why should my lord be so kind to me? So Asa returned that day on his way to Seir. But Yaakov journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore he called the place Sukkot. Asa requests to travel together with Yaakov. Yet not only does Yaakov claim that his large family and holdings make his household too slow and vulnerable to travel with Asa, but he also lies to his brother about his final destination. Yaakov says that he will meet up with Asav in Seir, Asav's home to which he returns. However, Yaakov actually travels to Sukkot, never fully reuniting or reconciling with his brother. It becomes clear that Asav bore no ill will towards Yaakov, and he actually wanted to be his brother again to reunite their families. It is Yaakov who remains distrustful. Yaakov who prepares for war, and Yaakov who insists on maintaining his distance. Understanding the difference in mindset, in openness to reconciliation that exists between the two brothers, can help us reread the Midrash from Shir Hashirim Rabbah. Perhaps the Midrash is not about the objective reality of what Esav is trying to do to Yaakov, but about the tragedy of the way that Yaakov reads his brother, as sinister rather than loving. So traumatized is he by his brother's once murderous intent. This invites us to re-examine the Midrash, to make a Midrash of the Midrash. Esau's approach is dependent on an often mistranslated verb, kuf hei hei. When Yaakov's neck hardens, the Midrash says that Esau's teeth were affected and then melted, v'kahu shinav. This root, translated above as set on edge, is often mistranslated as smashed or broken. Another famous Russia whose teeth are set on edge is the evil son at the Seder. There, too, his teeth are set on edge in the sense of his being put in his place, being talked down to. It is possible to understand that Yaakov's attitude insulted Esav, that it hurt his feelings. Not that Esav's teeth were shattered in any physical way, and, in fact, the term that follows, quote, his teeth were set on edge, end quote, is that they melted like wax, vina masu If Aesop's teeth were smashed, that indicates that he bit his brother with force. But if Aesop's teeth have softened and were not broken, perhaps this shows that his attitude has changed. Perhaps this really was a loving, brotherly hug or kiss but Yaakov couldn't perceive the gesture in that way. Interestingly, the conclusion of the Midrash modifies the image of Yaakov's neck slightly, but significantly. The first voice, Rabbi Shimon B'da Lazar, describes Yaakov's neck as being as hard as marble, as stone. However, when Rabbi Abahu applies the verse from Shir Hashirim, which describes a neck of ivory, the imagery becomes full circle. However, when Rabbi Abahu applies the verse from Shir Hashirim that describes a neck of ivory, the imagery comes full circle. Ivory, in Hebrew, is shane, identical to the word for tooth. Yaakov's neck did not just become tough, it became a tooth, a fang. Yaakov experiences Esau's proximity to him as a bite, because his own neck is itself a tooth. And he misunderstands his own lone resistance as being mutual and shared by his twin. But in fact, Asaph's teeth were as soft as wax. Perhaps in this reading, the hardness of Yaakov's neck did not turn Asaph's teeth to wax. But the hardness of Yaakov's neck meant that when he experienced the kiss of Asaph's lips, or the pressure of his head, he mistakenly thought, That those were his brother's dangerous teeth. The tragedy of this embrace is that Yaakov's assumption about who his brother was and what his intentions were closed him off from being able to read Asav as gentle and open. And because Yaakov was closed to his brother, Asav's attempt at reconciliation was read by Yaakov as an attempt at war. His neck was as tough as stone or ivory because Yaakov's heart was hard and resistant. There is another impasse recorded in the Torah that tells a similarly tragic tale, the case of the tunneling thief. If the thief is found tunneling and he is struck and dies, he has no blood. According to the plain sense of the verses in Shmo 22, if a person is found tunneling into a house, they are in the category of ein Lodamim, literally someone who has no blood. Biblically, the blood is where the soul resides. So what it means to say that someone has no blood is to say that they have no soul. They are already legally dead, and it is not considered to be murder if another person takes their life. However, classifying someone as without blood, as having forfeited their right to life, is in and of itself a very alarming statement, particularly within the context of a crime that at first glance seems to be merely one of trespassing and then of stealing. Neither of these actions, entering someone else's property without their permission or stealing their goods, is a death penalty offense. So why is the thief who is found tunneling into the home of their victim Considered to be bloodless and eligible to be killed. In the Talmud, Rava explains that the reasoning behind this law. In the Talmud, Rava explains what the reasoning is behind this law of breaking and entering. Amar Rava, Ma'itama Chazaka Adam rava said what is the reasoning behind the law of a thief found tunneling there is a presumption that a person will not withhold themselves from standing their ground and protecting their money so the thief will certainly say if I go the owner will stand up to me and not leave me be and if he stands up to me I will kill him Therefore, the owner can kill the thief, because the Torah said, one who comes to kill you, you should kill him first. Rava explains the reason why the thief in this story forfeits his right to life. The thief makes an assumption about the owner's willingness to use lethal force in order to defend his property. On the basis of this assumption, the thief comes in armed. Then, in fact, the owner may and should defend himself at all costs because he is being attacked by a dangerous intruder. The assumption that the thief makes is reasonable, but it isn't necessarily accurate. He doesn't know that the owner would be willing to choose violence in order to protect his property. However, because of his assumption and the actions that flow from it, the owner does become willing to resort to violence, not to defend his property but to defend himself against the now-armed thief. As observers of this dynamic, we may be frustrated with the players and find ourselves urging them to cut through the overlapping web of assumptions that transforms a misdemeanor crime of theft into a justification for lethal and irreversible force. As participants in our own version of this dynamic in our own lives, We know that getting underneath our foundational assumptions is not simple. It is so difficult because everything that we see about the other person confirms that our reading of them is correct. It is so difficult because everything that we see about the other person confirms that our initial reading of them is correct. We see the violent attitude of the owner and think that it is because of his willingness to defend his property our foundational assumption, when actually the owner is coming to defend himself against us and the way that our assumptions about him have enabled our malintent to increase and escalate the situation. Yaakov's assumption about his brother is well-informed, understandable, and nevertheless, completely wrong. It is only the hardness of his own neck that confirms it. Yaakov does feel his brother's teeth on his neck, He just doesn't understand that what he is actually feeling is his own stiffness, his own unwillingness to be receptive. Asaph seems tough because Yaakov is tough. Asaph is a mirror of Yaakov's own interpretation. The lesson here is as easy to see as it is difficult to live out. The assumptions that we make about other people are entrenched in us by our confirmation bias. And often what we believe to be true, we then make true. If we believe that someone doesn't like us, they will come to dislike us. If we believe that someone underestimates us, we will be led to behave in a way that indeed makes them judge us poorly, as less than our full, capable selves. The challenge is first to recognize when we've made assumptions, and then to realize that even if our assumptions turn out to be real, or to seem true, that doesn't mean that we have to live guided by them. We can choose to soften our hearts and receive the hug that we once thought so threatening. Wishing you a Shabbat of softness. Shabbat shalom. Thank you for listening to our weekly de Torah. To see more from our archive, please visit hadar.org slash Torah.